of Lasso. So we're returning to um, Malcolm's question. So the first point was whether the Mahayana and the Theravada interpreted equanimity some, uh, somewhat differently. I think there are certainly some differences. How deep they are really requires much more careful investigation than I can do right now. Uh, he continues, as far as I understand, the Theravada description of equanimity is mostly a quality of heart-mind. I'm sure that's true. A quality that is balanced in the midst and unshaken by the vicissitudes of life. I think that's true. The eight worldly wins, praise, blame, loss, gain, pain, pleasure, fame, and distribute. Yeah, I'm certain that that's true. And maybe that's all there is to it. In which case, we really are dealing then with upekka as in uh, vedana upekka. And that is simply the feeling of equanimity, right? But I, I mentioned early on in this retreat, remember a long time ago, weeks ago, uh, that there's the feeling of equanimity, which is neither pleasure nor pain. And then there's equanimity of simply, how do we say, shifting it to neutral. And that is on stage eight out of the nine stages preceding shamatha. At this point, there's simply no possibility while you're in samadhi of either subtle or coarse laxity or excitation arising. So you rest in equanimity in the sense of don't be applying introspection ready to apply antidotes because there's nothing that needs to be done. So chill, okay? It's not a feeling of equanimity. It's just resting, okay, nothing to be done. And then there's the upeksha of this evenness of heart with respect to attachment and aversion. So maybe you're right. Maybe that's really all there is to it, in which case that's a significant difference. Obviously, the two are completely compatible, but no question about it that in Mahayana, it's more than simply a feeling of evenness, of unperturbability, and so forth. As well as being one of the four immeasurables, which are, of course, called the four divine abodes, or Brahma-viharas, in Theravada, equanimity is the seventh and culmination of the seven factors of awakening. Equanim now, in that regard, equanimity is said to be the primary quality of the fourth jhana. Exactly right. And there, this is, looks to be all of one taste, so which is, again, again equanimity. And that's the imperturbability, the, the, just the evenness of the mind, unmoved by the vicissitudes of pleasure and displeasure. Just straight. And that is absolutely, that's perfected in the fourth jhana. And that must be uh, closely related to the fact that in the fourth jhana, you don't need to breathe anymore. There's just such an even, just an evenness all the way around that I think your, your breath, I can't imagine any alternative, your breath doesn't settle on out-breath, doesn't settle on in-breath, it just settles right in between, and you just don't need anything. You don't need any air at all. It's, it's comparable to the food of samadhi. It's called dingen zingize, where you don't need to take any gross substance any longer because you're just being fed straight from samadhi. In Theravada traditions, when equanimity is cultivated as... And immeasurable, and immeasurable, there is an emphasis on peacefulness and the understanding of karma. Very true. And as I mentioned last, uh, well, yesterday, uh, that the catalyst, that which is the direct cause, the proximate cause of the arising of upekka in the Theravada tradition is this recognition or recollect, recollection of karma. That all beings are the owners of their own actions, born of their actions, related to their actions, abide, uh, supported by their actions, Whatever action they shall do, those actions they shall be the heir. Of those actions they shall be the heir. All beings are what they have done and will be what they do. So yeah, that's just absolutely core, all uh, universal Buddhism. That is, there's simply no sectarianism there. So one may, one may just stop right there. One can see easily how that could just slip into cold indifference. And there's no question that's the, that's the false facsimile. But with that emphasis, 
um, this is the first thing that people who don't know anything about Buddhism often say when they said to karma, well, why should you do anything? I mean, if, if they want to go along with it, they said, oh, I see. So when people, when there's political turmoil in, in, in Thailand, well, just, just be present with it. Just be present with it, because it's, it's their karma. And a little baby has just tripped and fallen into a stream. Oh, what incredibly bad karma. Oh, I, I, good luck there. I hope your karma changes. You know? <laughs> <laughs> you know? So it can really be grotesque. And of course, that's not the Buddhist message. The Buddhist message is that, yes, what we're experiencing now is a result of karma. And what we experience five minutes from now may be in part a result of the karma accumulating right now. In other words, we are agents as well as recipients, right? So I love this aphorism, this aphorism from Tibetan Buddhism. If you want to draw inference about, about your past life, look at your present body. And if you want to draw inferences about your future life, look at your present mind. So the Mahayana perspective, it seems, which I really have appreciated, emphasizes the relationship to other beings and the relationship we have with ourselves. Yeah, it's primarily, I've added ourselves. It is really with other beings. There's no question about it. But with this weirdness of modernity, and it, it comes out of Europe, it goes to America, and I'm sure it got to Australia and so forth. But this whole kind of this split personality business that we do so commonly in the modern world of I just hate myself. Oh, I, have, I, just, I just feel I'm no good. And again, like, the person saying this is a little bit better than the person we're putting down, you know? I just, this whole business of low self-esteem, low self-contempt, and so forth and so on, because we, if not uniquely, we, we moderners do unusually slip into this I-it syndrome with respect to ourselves, since that's just a flat-out truth. And I'm sure I mentioned, and so I'll go extremely briefly, but in this meeting back in 1990 with His Holiness, it did take a good 10, 15 minutes to really impress upon His Holiness what a core crippling disease this is and how common it is in the, in, in the modern world. Because uh, it just did not ring a bell. And that was quite interesting, because here's a man who's very cosmopolitan, bear in mind this is 20 years ago, very cosmopolitan, speaks really quite good English, has met with many intellectuals and so forth, but this one in 1990 hadn't really gotten until that point, and then he's had, he's had it ever since. So because of that, because of this I relationship, low self-esteem, self-hatred, lack of self-worth, therefore I've included this alien who is I in the cultivation of equanimity. But it is different. So it emphasizes imp impartiality and attending without attachment or aversion, all in the spirit of a loving and caring heart. So yes, you have this exactly right. Do you think there is a difference in the angle that is taken or is there something more? I think we pretty well summed it up. But I, my impression is that you're pro you may very well be right, because I can't remember. I just have to go back, and I would look at Buddhaghosa, just read it very carefully, that whole section on Upekka, and see if there are any references to this really being centrally about, or even secondarily about, our relationship with other beings. If it's not there, then it's 100% what you said. So it certainly is what you said. The only question is whether they also have a bit more in the, in the line of what the Mahayana Buddhists are strongly emphasizing in that fourth immeasurable. And if that's, if that's what it is, then too, that upekka would indeed be a feeling. So the first two, loving-kindness and compassion, are aspirations, whereas mudita, simply it's joy, or empathetic joy, is clearly a feeling, and then equanimity would be a feeling as well. But if all of this is true, and I think it may very well be, I still... Uh, completely recoil at the notion of tr uh, translating uh, klesha or kilesa as emotion, because that's just flat out wrong. 
That's just not, that's, that's just wrong, <laughs> you know, wrong in every way. Uh, just consider the third immeasurable. I mean, mutita, if that's not a feeling, if that's not an emotion, I don't know what is. That's taking delight in others' joys and so forth. That's straight Theravada. So mudita, one of these spectacular virtues, divine abidings, is an emotion. So, that, so, so to equate kilesa or asavas, taints, defilements, cankers, I love that one especially. It always makes me think of my gums. Um, cankers, to translate any of those as emotion is really terribly misleading. But of course, you didn't do that. But I was really quite stunned when I saw an, a, a very fine scholar do that translation. Maybe he didn't really understand, didn't have, maybe he didn't have a feeling of what this word emotion really means in English. That's maybe the best explanation for a really bad translation. Okay, there's this one I'm going to definitely answer, but let's see what else is here. So, here's one from, uh, doesn't say anonymous, the one that I just received today is not anonymous. Nope, this is from Mervyn. In the Attention Revolution, I'm reading it for the first time, you describe the practice of shamatha as an expedition and write there are great adventures ahead but also perils and dead ends. Could you tell us a little about, bit about these perils and dead ends, please? <laughs> sure. Well, of course, I'll go back to um, two words that I now fully embrace. I had a kind of a love-hate relationship with one word and now it's just love-love. The word retreat, some of you might recall. So I'm probably just being redundant for many of you, like an old fogey that I'm definitely approaching becoming. Um, but I had this love-hate relationship with the word ret retreat for a while, because when you're waging a battle, then you lose. You say, retreat, retreat, advance to the rear. You know, and it's kind of like, whoa. And when people can't handle, you know, they can't, they can't handle modern society, they can't handle the pace of life. Oh, I need a retreat. Oh, fragile me, you know, and go off to some quiet place and try to recuperate. It always just sounded so wimpy, like defeatist, like you just can't handle it, huh? Okay, well, the rest of us who can, we don't need to go and retreat, but you people will go ahead, you Buddhists, go ahead and retreat. But we, you know, we materialists, we have a stiff upper lip. You know. <laughs> we can handle, we can handle the modern world. You Buddhists are just too little you know, jellyfish-like. Um, so I didn't like the word retreat, but then somebody reminded me or brought to my attention that it has also a very positive connotation, and that is when you're in the midst of a battle, for example, and you see, aha, for the time being, we're outnumbered. We won't be able to win. The, there's an overall war at stake here, but this battle, ah, we're outnumbered. They're totally outnumbered. What do you do? Die to the last man is a real bad strategy. Retreat, recoup. Recoup, come up with a new strategy, come in from a new angle, be smart. So, as Mao Zedong, I very rarely quote him, but I'll quote him here. <laughs> this is the only thing I quote of him, actually. <laughs> but for all of his problems, one could say, he was certainly a brilliant strategist in terms of guerrilla warfare. He was really smart. And his motto was, when the enemy advances, I retreat. When the enemy retreats, I advance. That's smart. Because he was, at, at one point, he was the smaller force, the nationalists with a larger force. So why meet a larger force with a smaller force? You're going to lose. So you recruit. But when they're, when they're retreating, then da-da-da-da, and you go off and you wage your battle. So in a similar fashion, then, there are times when we just get mired down in just what's happening in the world, mired down in our own inner world, of our own mental afflictions. And we're just finding, I'm not coping too well. I think I'm losing this battle with my own mental afflictions. Maybe it's time, as a smart strategy, temporarily retreat. Go into simplicity, 
learn new methods, learn new strategies, pick up new weapons, like three methods of shamatha, the four, the four weapons of the four measurables. And then when you've learned how over an eight-week period in your basic training, having retreated to this idyllic setting, then advance to the fore, you know, and right head, right back, and then wage, wage the good fight against your own mental afflictions. So now I like the word retreat. But for that time that I didn't like the word retreat, then I was going totally over into this word expedition, which you might recall has the Latin root of ex, as in out, ped, as in foot, like in pedestrian, or pedal, and then ishin doesn't mean anything at all. So it's, <laughs> it's ishining, it's ex-ishining your ped out of where it was. It's extricating your feet from a place you've gotten stuck. I really like that one. Because that's literally what it means. That's the etymology of it. You're xing your ped from where it got stuck. And then as we get stuck in ruts, we get stuck in grinding, just mud. In which case, it's time to go on to an expedition. And I like the valor of that. Expedition. Where's the, where's the victory banner? To the expedition. And that's what we're doing here. So what are the perils? So I think this is, now, now that we've been here for six weeks, uh, then I think, in a way, you all know the answer to this question. What are the perils? What you've been experiencing for the last six weeks, <laughs> you know, off and on. And that is dullness, nausea, um, insomnia, uh, pain and tension in the back, migraine headaches, pressure in the nose, pressure in the forehead, aching knees, vomiting. I could go on. Those are the perils. And none of those things that I just mentioned, none of those are unusual. They're just kind of par for the course. Very, very normal. If they stay, then that's not normal. Then we have to apply antidotes. Then, then something's going wrong. But if they come up for a day, they come up for an afternoon, whatever, like that, that's the breaks. That's, those are just the, um, the perils of the voyage, the perils of the expedition. Dead ends are we get into, in the practice itself, we may just get into a pattern in which we would then call a rut, where it's just not, not moving anywhere. It's just not going anywhere. Even though we're putting in the time, the motivation is there, the discipline is there, it's not just a matter of a week or two, but a month goes by, two months goes by, and we're saying, hey, two months, that's a time when I should be able to see some transformation, some development, or I'll use the P word, progress. And it didn't happen, so we may have hit a dead end. It can easily be complacency. It can be that. It can be just maintaining too much of an intensity so you're never able to relax to the next dimension. So bear in mind, you won't get to the next higher dimension unless you deepen to the next lower dimension. Deepen relaxation gives rise to greater stability and vividness. But if then your, your relaxation just flattens out, then it's going to be harder to go. And this is nothing new from my side. We've all seen the diagram of the elephant, the monkey, the, uh, the elephant, the monkey, the rabbit. And that is the flame which is relatively large at the beginning, goes smaller, 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 and it's out. And so unless your flame of effort is decreasing, then you're giving too much effort, which means you're not relaxing enough, and that's why you need to get all, give all that effort, because you're not relaxing enough. OK? 